Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Port Adelaide has history. And Wendy Scarf has given us some fascinating characters living there. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning, Jan. Good morning, David. Good morning. Wendy, when have you set your book? When have I set it? When? Oh, I have set it between uh, probably the middle of the 1920s to the middle of the 1930s. It's been called a Between the Wars book, um, and it is. It's also a story of the Great Depression in Australia. And why did you give it the title Hunger Town? Because the Great Depression was a time of great distress for many Australians. Hunger was a reality. Unemployment was a desperate reality. And people in the main often existed on soup kitchens and government handouts of food. So Hunger Town seemed very appropriate. And, of course, it's a quotation from Henry Lawson's poem, My Army, Oh My Army, which seemed to me very Australian. Ah, well, Banjo Patterson wrote of the wealthy in Australia. Lawson wrote of the battlers. And this is where Port Melbourne is, or Port Adelaide really has a community of battlers. Well, Port Adelaide I saw as a microcosm of the whole depression in Australia and in a larger way the depression throughout the world because it wasn't just Australians who were suffering as a result of the Great Depression. Um, People were suffering all over the world and there were hunger marches, big hunger marches in London as well as in um, Adelaide because the hunger marches didn't begin actually until about 1931 and Hunger Town is set um, over that period but it begins before that. You've got a little bit from your book about... Uh, a bit from one of those hunger marches. How about reading out, reading, reading it to us so we get a feel of your writing? Uh, in Port Adelaide, there were a number of strikes. There was a, a great big strike on the waterfront in 1928. In fact, there were a series of strikes. And there were industrial battles between what were called the scabs or volunteer labour and the um, people, the wharfies, the people who walked worked on the waterside because they were losing their jobs. And as a result of these terrible conflicts and the beatings that occurred because of police reprisals, the women organised a march. And the Port Adelaide Women's March has actually come down in history as one of the great protest marches. They assumed that they would be unharmed because they were wheeling prams, they had toddlers with them and they were women but it did not happen that way in actual fact the police were waiting for them by dint of a confusion in which the men who had moved into the march behind them to as they said later to protect them by dint of the fact that they were informed that there were scabs loading on Queen's Wharf they pushed forward against the women and the women were sandwiched between the um, the men behind them, the police and eventually they were driven into the wharf and trapped between the warehouses and the water. So there was a ter- there was terrible chaos. Um, children were thrown onto the ground. Um, babies were pushed, fell out of their prams and rolled across the wharves. 
and uh, it was um, a disastrous happening. So this is the piece from the book. And then it happened. It was all so fast that none of us had time to think. A boy burst out of the crowd on the footpath and running alongside the men shouted, The scabs are loading at Queen's Wharf. Behind me some of the women halted, at first confused, then shoved forward by those behind. Mrs Danley shouted through her megaphone, Ladies, continue the march, we must reach the town hall, be calm. But we were already on North Parade, approaching the wharf. Obsessed with reaching the scabs, the men bulked behind us, herding us before them in their thirst for confrontation. The crowd surged at my back, and clutching Winnie, I had no choice but to hurtle forward with the protesters. I searched desperately for some means of escape from what had now become a scrum of screaming, hysterical women and children, but there was no way out. We were being corralled between the warehouses and the river. The momentum precipitated us onto the wharf, and there before us, lined up and immobile as carved granite, sat a row of mounted police. In unison, they drew their battens from their holsters and waited. One woman's scream topped all others and ricocheted off the stone walls of the warehouses. A flock of seagulls perched on a rooftop took off in panic. I knew that behind me prams toppled and babies were thrown on the rail tracks. The crowd concertinaed as women braced themselves against the rush to save their children before they too were flung to the ground. Still on my feet, I pelted forward, Winnie and Marie running beside me. Mrs. Danley, still on her feet in the crush, bellowed through her megaphone for the police to back off. We're women and children. Back off. You're killing us. She might have been King Canute, ineffectively and hopelessly ordering the waves to retreat. The I in the book is Judith Larson. Um, Judith is the first person narrator of Hungertown. What happens with this is because you've given us some great characters, we really get a sense of the whole time with emotive feeling. Now, let's talk about Judith, because we meet Judith when she's only eight years old, but uh, her home is quite different. She lives on a, a hulk in the Port Adelaide River. Her father's a winchman. The hulks, it's a coaling hulk. Um, because the Port Adelaide River is a narrow river and can't take the big ships that have to dock, they, the coaling hulks take the coal from the Port River out to Outer Harbour, where the big ships that are docked can receive it. And Judith's father was a winchman. He was responsible for this process of coaling. Uh, it was quite complicated. It, there were a large number of men did it. And the winchman was particularly responsible because he had to be responsible for bringing the coal up from the hold. Mm. And if he dropped it, um, if he brought it up too quickly and it fell, it fell on the coalies in the hold. So Judith's father had a very stressful occupation. In fact, I say at one stage in the book that his mother said he used to wake up sweating in the middle of the night in a total panic that he had dropped the coal. He had yeah. dropped the coal and killed somebody in the hole. Oh, what have you done, published Jane? Or not has been around. <laughs> Hit the button accidentally. Oh, Be careful. Jane Goldsmith. You were so enthralled, David. Can you press 
words Stop. and writing, oh, authors and audiences. There you go. Thank you, David. Uh, look, I, I do apologise about that. I was you're enthralled I, I by was what was being said. The storytelling, because and because um, uh, young Judith was sort of living on the barge. She didn't. She she was away from the mainland for ages. You know, sort of as, as long as it took the barge. So education was quite uh, not in the cards, was it? What did what did Judith's father say about education? Well, it was um, a girl didn't need a formal education. No. She would get married. Absolutely. Um, and uh, Judith's mother bridled at this and said, sort of, indeed, is that all you think she needs in life? And uh, he was rather taken aback by this. So as a consolation, he took Judith to the working men's club. <laughs> uh, his mo- her mother protested that it wasn't suitable for a child. However, it was a very great learning experience for Judith. Well, she did. She sort of sat there and drew and listened to all the comment. But then this one time, she, she met a Joe who... Uh, Called her nearly 12, but was very influential in her, in her life. Joe was a, had been a compositor and he was leaded. So he was a man who was sick. But he ran the library at the Working Men's Club and when Judith crept in there one day, she, she'd watched this door and she'd looked. She was only eight at the time or a little bit older, I think. No, she said she told Joe she was nearly 12. She'd actually just turned 11, but she wanted to increase her age to sound important. So she told Joe that she was nearly 12. So henceforth, he always calls her nearly 12. And um, she, she saw this door, you know, it was opened a bit at the time, so she noticed occasionally somebody came and went. So she crept up and opened the door and went in and she discovered it was a library. So she really took great delight under Joe's um, stewardship that she read. And she started with A, so Aristotle was one of her first books. <laughs> and Aristophanes. <laughs> but when Joe died, she, uh, Joe actually gave her some money on his death. And how did she spend it? She went to art school. She had a job when she was 15 working at a slinging hash, as she called it, at a cafe in the port, which she called the Chewett. And the all Chewett the, and at Spirit. Spirit. Oh, <laughs> all the working guys used to call it, was nicknamed the Chewett and Spirit. Anyway, she had this awful job there, slinging hash, as she called it, and um, she hated it. But she had this talent for writing that Joe recognised. And um, unfortunately, he died before he could help her in any other way, but he left her a bequest. And with that bequest, she took herself to art school. It was the time when everybody was losing their jobs and there was no, she really had no choice. She either went to art school or she did nothing and um, it seemed a wonderful opportunity for her. So that's where she went. At this first job, one of the regular customers to come in was Nathan. Now, he'd sit, he'd read the whole time, he had thick glasses. He didn't pay any attention to her, which was a bit of a challenge. She tried to engage him in conversation. What was he so serious about? He was reading Communist Party philosophy because Nathan Nathan is the communist in, in it and Nathan is the ideologue, the perfect ideologue. And uh, he's... She meets him there and he runs through her life. In the end, of course, he becomes something of a Mephistopheles in her life. But um, he also uh, he also affects the relationship between her and her Harry, uh, who her she marries Harry. and her is her, uh, later is her husband. So Nathan is always there as some sort of influence. On their on their lives, and she comes, 
she comes to dislike him intensely, mm. but he has an influence on Harry. Her best friend, Winnie. Oh, yes. Now, now, Winnie, there's depression and unemployment all around, but it doesn't affect Winnie, really, does it? Occasionally it does. Oh, Occasionally she, she blamed Judith for it all <laughs> at one stage. <laughs> but oh, Winnie takes... And occasionally Winnie rises to the occasion. She goes on the Women's March. Um, she does help Judith at one stage at the towards the end of the book. She mm. shows herself to be a real friend yeah. and quite strong. So Winnie, Winnie starts off and you think she's frivolous and feather-brained, but she she proves to have a sterling worth in terms of friendship. And it's Winnie's cousin Harry that. Um uh, Judith ends up falling in love with and marrying. But Winnie quotes her father. Now, her father is employed. He's, uh, well, he, he looks upon the the unemployed. He, he talks about Harry, and Winnie quotes her father. Dad says that Harry belongs to a union, the Unemployed Workers' Union. It is not even a proper union, but a union of those too hopeless and useless to get jobs. Daddy thinks he's joined the communists, a Bolshevik in the family, and he blames you, Judith. Yes, yes. There's, at one point, this is the point where Judith and Winnie really have quite a big row because Judith's very indignant that she will be blamed by Winnie for this. But it does it does show the, some of the attitude anyway to people who were communists at that time. It's but one of the things about Harry is. What does he really want to get out of communism? <laughs> Harry is dreamy. Harry is idealistic. Harry is very sweet. Um, Harry is a, is a delightful man, perhaps in some ways a little feckless. I said, I said this to um, a young person that I know in Warnable who actually runs Collins Bookstore, and I said, you know, I think Cassie... Harry was a little feckless, and she said to me, yes, she said. Well, she said she was told not to marry him. <laughs> <laughs> Harry thought that, you know, with the communism, everybody's abilities would shine, so he would get free dancing lessons. <laughs> I love that. Well, Harry, Harry was a musician, and he made a sort of a living um, playing in um, dance halls, and he made a living at playing at the silent films when there was a music accompaniment to them. He lost that job, of course, yeah, when the walkies, um, yes, the when talkies the talkies came, came on. And he used to come down from the stage and dance with some of the girls who went to the dance halls at the semaphore, and um, they called him Twinkle Toes. So Harry, Harry actually had had very little opportunity to develop his skills, and he loved music. Um, at in one scene towards the end, they go to church at Christmas time, and they listen to the organ playing a bark, and he he just sits there and he's entranced, and he says to Judith, "One of these days, I will learn the organ because beside it the piano just tinkles." Mm. And uh, so Harry Harry had longings um, beyond just the work that he could get, and. He was apprenticed to a foundry, and foundries in those days were appalling, and he took the place of a boy who had died because he had been skylarking uh -huh. and ridden one of the big belts to the ceiling, and, of course, his head was crushed. So they, he was killed. They took him down. They put him, carried him out on a, on a stretcher thing. They threw a 
passion bag over him and they called his mother to identify him and Harry took his place. It's a hard way, isn't it? Now, it's it is. Wendy Scarf, as you can tell, has put a lot of um, description and uh, individuals and everything into this book. But we've got to get on to the guts. We've got to get on to what Judith actually does with her writing, with, with her writing and her artwork, because what have you made her? She's a political cartoonist. Now, that is phenomenal. Was there ever such a thing as a female political? No, there wasn't, and a friend of mine looked up the internet to see if there had been one, and <laughs> she couldn't find one. Well, she was told to you know, change her name in, by pseudonym or um, to become a man, and also she submitted cartoons to very different newspapers at the time. When you think of the Workers Weekly, workers weekly. or... Um, the, the Argus, you know, very different readership. And so sometimes she was ch- asked to self-censor censor, you know, or change her cartoons in some way, and she didn't. But this, her cartoons illustrated her, her own, gave her her own voice, whether it was about the protest marches or the, the, um, the mounted police with the batons or the soup kitchens. It, it was a very interesting idea, and you actually get her to ask um, answer how she did the drawings whether she drew all the unemployed as downtrodden and desperate or noble and it really does make you think about you know just the different mm, bias you can put on the same scene yes i think it's harry that says to her but judith nathan nathan has said you present the working people as looking so desperate. She said, he said, why don't you make them look noble? And she said, Harry, they are desperate. Haven't you looked around you? This is the depression. People are starving. Haven't you looked around you, Harry? It's, um, the cartoons were published by, I say, because I've made them all up. They're yes. all, they're all, they're all my own, with my husband's help, my husband, my husband's advice and suggestion. We've had a lot of fun actually constructing these cartoons. But, um, they all, they all, they all reflect some aspect of the life that Judith is living, and the bigger presses begin to take her as things start to happen in Europe. Right at the beginning, Joe says to her, "There's a new book out. It's called Mein Kampf." Mm. He said, "It's written by a thoroughly nasty bloke, and if he gets any any control in the world, we'll all be in a pretty pickle." And that's that's right at the beginning in the 1920s when Joe says this to her. So when we move into the 1930s in the book and the Hearst cartoons start to include things about fascism, then she's accepted more by the main presses. Mm. Look, this book by Wendy Scarf, Hunger Town, it really has... A lot about different degrees of idealism. You know, Nathan is at the very top. He sort of sees the scriptures as, as the word to follow. And uh, then there's other people who've, who who also follow it. We have a, an incident in Mildura where they're all called red rattlers and run out of town. And then coming towards the end of the book, we have Spain. And Spain had such a mixed lot of communism, anarchy. Well, what is it? Anarchist. Anarchist. Thank you very much. Anarchist. Anarchism. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> We've got anarchy going on here at the moment. <laughs> but um, so it's, and it also causes a rift in the marriage because 
Harry goes to Spain. We mustn't tell the reader too much about oh, we this, won't. Jen. We no. Mm. But uh, Harry writes, politics here is much more serious, more bitter and more dangerous than in Australia. And the letters stop. So what's going to happen? What is Judith going to do about that? But it's not just with the men with idealism. It's also the women. And we get some wonderful, wonderful women through this story. We get Mrs Delaney, the real doer, on a megaphone. And, you know, she's, she's out there organising women. There's um, Nathan's two sisters. What do you call them, Ju- uh, Wendy? Sisters of the Medusa. <laughs> That are, you know, a, a pretty... Mm. And then there's the lovely, lovely Miss M- uh, Marie Taylor, the art teacher, who makes, you know, with all of the poverty and everything going on, nasturtium leaf sandwiches. <laughs> Sounds delicious. So it's all about people in a time in history. Some just do, some just say, some think and act. So, Wendy Scarf, thank you so much for Hunger Town, a compelling love story based on historical events. And, David... Jan? Wendy Scarf has been shortlisted... Really? ...for the Nitabi Kibble Literacy Award. Lovely. Now, these other other authors, like Sophie Cunningham, Helen Garner, Favel Parrott, They've also been shortlisted along with Wendy's Scarf. Wonderful. Um, Jan, could I just make a minor correction there? It's long-listed, but it's a short oh. long list because there's only six oh, selected six. from the <laughs> Six on the long list. Six, there's six on the long list. So it's, very, it's a very list. short long list, but <laughs> but it was you're quite, you're quite uh, uh, justified in calling it a short list because it's a short list, but it's... <laughs> It's short called list. a long list. It means that the actual short list will be in June and whether Hungertown will be on that short list, we don't know, but I'm very happy 